This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a California perspective with a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, Episode 2, Frisco, a novel, talking with author Daniel Bacon. Set in San Francisco in 1934, the story is set amidst the general strike of the same year, where labor and capital were caught in monumental struggles. Our guest today is author Daniel Bacon, noted San Francisco historian. Hi, Daniel, and welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Daniel, before we launch into the book, please tell us about yourself. Well, like you, I was born in New York City. However, my parents moved to the Bay Area when I was two, so don't have any memory of it. And they came here to the Bay Area, where my father found work in the printing industry. And I grew up in North Oakland and Berkeley, attended Berkeley High, then went through some various different careers, ultimately also uh, got a, a bachelor's degree at San Francisco State, where I actually found out that um, my real passion was writing. You know, I was one of those guys where, you know, a professor would say, would assign a paper, and the other students would go, oh, no, not another paper. And I would be rub- rubbing my hands together completely <laughs> saying, ah, another paper. Another great. paper, great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I realized then that writing was was really a passion and going to be. After I graduated, I worked for, you know, a PR firm and in, in, in marketing and so forth. But um, I also then developed an interest in San Francisco history, ended up on the board of the San Francisco Historical Society, launched into a project to create a historical walking trail in San Francisco called the Barbary Coast Trail, and dedicated a number of years of my life to that project, which culminated with the opening of the trail in May of 1998. As part of that project, I decided I would write the definitive guidebook to the Barbary Coast Trail because it combined my interest in writing as well as my interest in San Francisco history. And so uh, I first came out with a a 260-page guidebook to it Uh, called Walking San Francisco on the Barbary Coast Trail, um, which is still available today. And then realized that, well, maybe not everybody was going to want to read or go through such a lengthy book, although I think it has a lot in it that, you know, really will help help anybody walking the trail learn about in depth about the city's history. But I realized not everybody was going to do want that much information. So then I came out with a shorter guide called a pocket guide, uh-huh. which is a full color pocket guide, about 33 pages to the trail called the Barbary Coast Trail Official Guide. Very, you know, satisfying project. It was so wonderful to see the trail get developed. We had to get permits from five different governmental agencies had to raise $250,000 to put all the medallions in the ground. It was all worth it, of course. Then for my next project, I decided that I really wanted to write a a fictional book, a historical novel uh, set in San Francisco. At that point, I was very familiar with San Francisco history. And I, I decided that I wanted the book to be set during some major 
event. Always good for a historical novel, you、mm-hmm. know, to be able to wrap it inside some kind of tumultuous situation. And of course, the first two obvious candidates would have, would have been, you know, the gold rush、yes. and the 1906 earthquake and fire. But in looking at that, I thought, well, you know, there's already a lot of books, both fiction and nonfiction. Written about those two events, you know, I thought I, I want to do it about something else that maybe is not so well known, but also, you know, is is a pretty significant event.、Mm-hmm. Coming from a family that you know was a, a pro-union family, I knowing about the 1930s, I, I I started thinking about the 1934 maritime strike on the Embarcadero. Uh, which then became a general strike,、right. which was a very significant event. General strikes in which all the unions in a given town or area go on strike is a very rare event, and it was an event that closed down, literally closed down the city for four days. And、mm-hmm. unheard of in American history, never happened before in American history. But this was the culmination of a, a months-long maritime strike. So, start to think, yeah, that would be a, a really good、uh, event to center my novel around. Now, Daniel, can I just interject there? How did、of、you come?、Course. How did you come up with the title Frisco? For gener-、uh, generations of San Franciscans. Were admonished by the late newspaper columnist Herb Cain about ever referring to San Francisco as Frisco. So, where do you stand on this controversial issue about is it Frisco or is it San Francisco or is it both? That's a that's a, a interesting question. In all my research, one of the things that I found was that in that time period in the 1930s, Frisco was a really common. Term referring to San Francisco, of course,、uh-huh. for basically working people. You know,、mm-hmm. whether you were a longshoreman, or a cop, or a butcher, or a baker, or a maid, or whatever, people used Frisco.、Uh, it was a very common within the working classes. The thing about it is, is that it was never a Word that was used as, in a, any sort of derisive way. In fact, just the opposite. It was used affectionately, like people might call New York the Big Apple, right? It,、uh-huh. it was a. It was always affectionate, and I think it was really kind of more the sort of you know the elite high society intellectual perhaps people who didn't like the term Frisco felt in some way that it was demeaning. Again, it was never used that way, and it was never thought of that way, and and so. You know, I thought that it was really good. Actually, I almost named the book, and I think you referred to how Herb Cain had written a book. I think in the fifties, early sixties, Herb Cain wrote a book called "Don't Call It Frisco." Right. right? And so <laughs> I almost named my book. We called it Frisco, <laughs> as a way to kind of、uh, back at you, back at you for Herb. Well, for Herb.、Yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, let's launch into the book. So many San Francisco landmarks are included in the book, like the Archbishop's Mansion, the Palace Hotel on Market Street, Coit Tower, City Hall, Red's Java House down on、uh, down on the Embarcadero. It's almost like reminiscent of Hitchcock's tour of San Francisco in Vertigo. So, what was your inspiration for the story? I intentionally placed a lot of scenes. 
in the landmarks that you're talking about and chose landmarks that are still around and that, you know, anyone can still go visit. And maybe part of that is because, you know, after creating the Barbary Coast Trail, which leads people to all these historic sites, you know, I was interested in if somebody read the book and somehow wanted to do a tour of some of the sites in the book, that they would be able to go to these places. Right. And and they're all, you know, really interesting places. It's um, They're definitely all worth visiting. It, it was part of the plan. It was no accident that I chose the, the places that you mentioned, because in fact, as I say, they, they are still with us here today. And the Archbishop's Mansion, for instance, is today a bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can, you can actually go inside it and you well, can see what it looks like. In and, fact, I lived right up the street from it because it's right there on Alamo Square. And mm-hmm. before we went on the air, you told me that, tell me that story about Archbishop Hannah and the prominence of Catholics in San Francisco during the 1930s. Because of the so many Italian and Irish immigrants, it's estimated that uh, a third of, or I'm sorry, two-thirds of San Franciscans in the 1930s were Catholic. And so the Catholic Church was a very, very strong and powerful influence in San Francisco. And it was sometimes said that the Archbishop's Mansion, where Archbishop Edward J. Hanna lived, on Alamo Square, that it was considered San Francisco's second city hall. (laughs) Uh, He had that much power. Uh And it was said that when um, a mayor, first of all, wanted to even run for office, he would first come and visit the archbishop to get his blessing, Uh or at least make sure that he wasn't going to be an anathema to the archbishop. And second of all, when mayors wanted to uh, appoint a a new police chief, that they would send the name to the archbishop uh, to kind of get his, his, his backing and his support because nobody wanted to be criticized by the archbishop back then. He was, he was a, he was a power, a powerful figure. That's amazing. You know, just another demographic stat. I had read that in 1890, when the population of the city of San Francisco was 400,000, that one third of that 400,000 population was actually native-born Irish. Not Irish-American, but actual native-born Irish, just to give people a sense of the strength of the Irish community, the Italian community, the the Mexican, the Hispanic communities, to say nothing of the Chinese communities. Very much a a melting pot San Francisco was and still is. Indeed, yeah. Well, the Irish... uh... The Irish did very well in San Francisco. Uh, you know, if you know about the, um, the big bonanza of the Comstock load, which uh, produced the Bonanza Kings, you know, these first really multi, multi, multi-millionaires in San Francisco, several of them were Irish immigrants who, who made out quite well. Uh, and that was in the 1860s, 1870s. And, and obviously, you know, that, that inspired other Irish immigrants to come to San Francisco and, and make their way. And um, in fact, so, yes. the, one of the protagonists, Clarissa McMahon, of course, is a descendant of Irish immigrants. So let's come back to the protagonist, the storyline. And again, Clarissa McMahon is, is one of our protagonists in the book. Yeah, so the book centers around two characters. Nick Benson, who is father, owns a cargo warehouse along the waterfront. Um, and Clarissa McMahon, whose father is an Irish immigrant who owns a, a small print shop uh, on Hay Street. And at the beginning of the novel, 
Nick Benson's father has gone bankrupt because of the Great Depression, commits suicide. And so Nick is is left with what to do. He's got a, a mother and a sister. They need to be supported. But he also has this dream of being a reporter. And he really wants to be a reporter, but he's been rejected by the Chronicle, who thinks that he's too young and too inexperienced. And so he ends up getting a job on a merchant ship uh, going around the Pacific. So it, you know, that's how the book opens up with Nick going uh, on this journey. And then Clarissa ends up getting a job with the Waterfront Association, which is a uh, umbrella organization for all of the ship owners and, uh, and that and shipping companies that were situated on San Francisco's uh, waterfront. Let me say at this point that really up until the 1950s, from you know the gold rush up to the 1950s, San Francisco was above all a, a port city. Yes, that was its that was really its its primary industry. And as a matter of fact, um, as of as late as 1900, the port of San Francisco moved more cargo in and out than all of the other west coast ports combined really so yeah so san francisco had this huge port that was you know three miles long along the embarcadero uh it could berth as many as uh, 250 ships at any one time and there were uh, probably five thousand men who worked on and off along the waterfront uh, moving, you know, cargo on and off the boats, you know, the, the longshoremen. And then there were all sorts of ancillary businesses all along the waterfront that supported, you know, that uh, endeavor. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, as I mentioned to you earlier, my uncle, my namesake uncle, used to work for American President Lines. And he sailed in and out of San Francisco on the President Wilson, the President Coolidge, the President Roosevelt, the President Harding during the 1950s and the 1960s. And of course, as you as you stated, San Francisco was a huge hub. For instance, the Matson building that you refer to on Market Street, and of course, Dollar Steamship Company, of course, the Diana Dollar is the ship that features in the, in the story. They were two major steamship companies here in San Francisco, and their buildings, those buildings are still there today, no longer steamship companies, but the presence and just the, the overwhelming economic importance of steamship companies like that in the San Francisco port, well, of course, we have nothing comparable to that today. Well, except for maybe the tech industry. (laughs) You know, it uh, brought in, the the shipping industries brought in millions and millions of dollars into the San Francisco economy for decades and decades. So it was a, you know, it's leading industry, as I say, up until the 1950s and very important. Um, When Nick Benson comes back, my protagonist comes back to San Francisco. He still needs to work, and he ends up getting a job on San Francisco, the Embarcadero, as a longshoreman. And what he discovers there is that the hiring process, especially if you're new to the to um, longshoring, the hiring process was actually very demeaning and and done in such a way as to really make the longshoremen as powerless as possible. It was done through what was called the shape-up. And this occurred 
across from the ferry building every morning when about half the longshoremen were, that's where they were hired. So about half of them had regular jobs, you know, working at specific piers and for specific companies. But about half of the longshoremen were just basically kind of treated as day laborers. And so in every morning they would line up opposite the ferry building and there'd usually be, you know, several hundred, maybe even a couple thousand, depending on what was going on. And the hiring boss would come out and they would form kind of a semicircle around him called the shape up. And he would go through and he would sort of name whoever he wanted to hire for that day. So he could easily discriminate against anybody who shipping companies didn't like it. And also, you know, it made it so that if you're only hired a day or two or three at a time, um, you, you know, you weren't inclined to make any trouble because you knew that you were going to have to go through the same process over and over again. It created a situation where longshoremen were highly exploited. They, they were often not paid any kind of overtime. They were, even though they were made to work sometimes two shifts straight, the shipping company wanted to get the ship out quickly. You know, they might have to end up working a double shift. And if you know, this was very physical work. It's not like the container business that, you know, is how it's done today. This is called um, break bulk cargo. In other words, you know, the cargo was shipped box by box, piece by piece, and it had to be loaded onto, onto pallets. Uh, and then the pallets would be hoisted up in slings and put onto the deck of the ship. And then it had to be then, or it might be dropped into the, the hull of the ship, but then it had to by hand be packed inside the ship. So very physical work, very difficult work and very dangerous because inside the ship, if you were, you might be packing something that might you know go up 20 feet higher than you. So if something fell, it could easily damage. And as a matter of fact, um, and we'll, talk about him a little bit farther on but harry bridges one of the ways he he got into becoming a labor leader was he was uh, injured while loading a ship and he couldn't work for a year and he spent almost that entire year um in the library reading about you know labor issues and strikes and whatnot so it was a uh, it provided some education for him but again i get ahead of myself so this was what uh, Nick Benson faced, and he understood very quickly uh, that this was, you know, not a good situation for the strikers. Tell me about Harry Bridges, because he was a a lion, a monumental leader of the labor movement here in San Francisco. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I met him once at the San Francisco Labor Council in the 1980s. It was a breakfast, and he was well in his 80s at that point, but he was a lion of a leader. Tell us a little bit about him. He was a he was an Australian. He had a thick Australian accent until the until the end of his days. But he looms large in your story, and he also was the uh, the leader of the waterfront strike, and then of course a leader of the general strike. You know, Harry Bridges is one of those figures that proves that leaders matter. Leaders can make a huge difference, and I don't think that the either the Maritime strike or the general strike would have happened if it hadn't been for Harry Bridges, you know, and sort of interesting because, you know, it reminds me a little bit of of uh, what's happening in Ukraine. You know, we saw that the bravery of Zelensky alone 
was really uh, instrumental, you know, that country, you know, being able to ward off uh, the invaders. So Bridges was an extraordinary character, um, really a magnetic, charismatic man and, and an eloquent orator uh, who really galvanized the longshoremen together um, up and down the entire West Coast, was able to lead them into a very, very effective strike. He started out, of course, as an Australian, as a young man starting at the age of uh, 16, working on merchant ships that took him around the Pacific, saw a bit of the world. And when he came to San Francisco, he really liked what he saw here and decided that he was going to stay here in San Francisco. He ended up like a lot of young men uh, of his age, working class men. He ended up on uh, the Embarcadero working as a longshoreman and eventually uh, had a pretty regular job doing that, working for one of the um, the companies that uh, loaded and unloaded the, the merchant ships that came in and out of the port. Interestingly, it was, as I mentioned earlier, it could be a very dangerous job there were a lot of injuries. In fact, there was a small little hospital on the Embarcadero, hmm. uh, and specifically because enough injuries occurred that they needed someplace close to take people. Hmm. And Harry was one of those people who got injured. A, a, a load of steel I-beams fell on his foot. And oh, my God. He, he, yeah, he was not able to work for about a year. And during that time, he, he didn't have much money, but so he went to the public library and did a lot of reading, workers and their rights and all of that. And I think it was that period that really got him um, inspired to begin organizing a union on um, the, the San Francisco waterfront. Now, let's come back to the protagonist, the main protagonist, Nick Benson. So Nick Benson has come back to San Francisco. He he set sail around the Orient on the Diana Dollar, the Dollar Steamship Company, of course, was one of the big, the leading uh, steamship companies of San Francisco. Comes back, of course, he's a graduate of Berkeley. He studied journalism there. Comes back and he gets a job as a longshoreman because, again, for our listeners, we're in the depths of the Depression and it was tough to get work, harder to get work as a journalist. And so he goes to goes out and he gets a job as a longshoreman. And at that point, tell us about, because there's a little bit of intrigue here. On the one hand, he's a longshoreman, but on the other hand, he's also kind of reporting back to the, the Association of Ship Owners. And uh, tell us about that intrigue, because later on, when Harry befriends him, that becomes an issue. Through various plot uh, devices, which... I won't say because, you, you know, you'll, you might want to read the book. But anyway, Nick Benson is forced to report to the Waterfront Association, which is the Association of the Ship Owners. In the beginning of the book, he's, he's really not particularly political, right? He grew up in a middle class family. His father was a you know business owner. But as you say, because of the Great Depression, he ends up working on the waterfront. And so he starts to see, you know, what it's like to work, you know, be a working class worker in, in, in on the waterfront and, and how difficult that is. Starts to become friends with many of the longshoremen, but he's also been tasked, once the strike starts, uh, the maritime strike starts, uh, he's also tasked with, you know, being basically an informant, right. um, which, he's, which he's really not, you know, crazy about doing, but he's, he's over a barrel and he has to do it. 
And so he ends up working on the waterfront newspaper, which is distributed to the longshoremen and the strikers in a roundabout way. This is his roundabout way of, of becoming a journalist, right? He, he really didn't expect that this was how he'd become a journalist. He thought he'd get a job with a big city newspaper, you know, because he, you know, he had a college degree. And But he ends up becoming a journalist for this waterfront newspaper for the called the waterfront worker you know is gathering information uh which he's passing back to the waterfront uh association yeah he's also a confidant of harry bridges who's the leader of the longshoremen and the strike right so he's uniquely situated to gather information but he you know he starts to feel more and more uncomfortable yes in that role i mean he was never really totally comfortable with it from the start but he had to do it but then he begins to become even more and more uncomfortable with it. That's kind of how the story starts to, to play out. How did this strike, a longshoreman strike here in San Francisco, how did that morph into a general strike where the strike w- went beyond just the longshoreman? It, went, it, it affected every aspect of San Francisco society, stores, offices, everything transportation, everything was affected and shut down during the general strike for four days, right? Yeah. Well, the first thing you need to understand is that San Francisco was a pretty strong union town in the 1930s. There were literally, there were probably about 60 different unions that were operating Mm -hmm. in the city at that time. And then the other thing that's really important to understand, which is that after Franklin Roosevelt became president, in 1933, he passed a, a, a number of pieces of legislation, uh, one of which was to create the National Industrial Recovery Act, part of which which was an effort to make the situation with workers more equitable by setting, you know, number of hours and wages and so forth, various different things. So, but one of the most important pieces of that legislation was that it, it gave workers the right to organize. In other words, you couldn't be fired just for organizing. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't be identified, oh, you know, he's a union organizer. We'll get rid of him. So it made that essentially illegal, which really bolstered um, the labor movement. And so when the strike began on May 8th, 1934, the maritime strike, and the the longshoremen went off the job, a day later, the the sailors union decided that they too wanted to strike because Mm -hmm. they had themselves a number of agreements. And essentially, the longshoremen strike started uh, to gain a dollar an hour wages uh, and and a, and a union and a coastwide contract. So in other words, the shippers, because these ships would go from port to port up and down the coast, uh, the longshoremen felt that they really needed a, a coastwide contract that applied to all the ports uh, along the West Coast. So and those so, so those ports would have been Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, San Pedro, San Diego, etc. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they also they wanted to set up a hiring hall so that instead of the shape up, the, the guy could you know, pick you out depending on what he thought of you. Um, it would be a, a hiring hall where the longshoremen could come you know, out of the elements that was, you know, raining or whatever. And, and then, you know, you were you were sent out on jobs 
on a rotational basis. It basically got rid of that kind of discrimination. That's, that was the goal of this, right? Today, we would think of that as a very, very <laughs> modest goal, but it was a, it would have been a big change. Big change uh, in, the, in those days. That. How did Archbishop Hanna become involved, and what was his role in the general strike? I mean, you, we tend to think of today, we tend to think of a mayor of a big city getting involved in a big uh, strike. But in the case of the general strike, it was actually Archbishop of Archbishop Hanna who played a, a leading role in ending the general strike. Well, he was a figure that was really well thought of in San Francisco, both by the working class Irish, as well as the ship owners who knew that he wasn't some wild-eyed radical. So he was really the perfect choice to head the arbitration board to hear the grievances. This came about because after about two months of striking, during the strike rather, the ship owners claimed they were losing a million dollars a day, whether that was true or not, but I'm sure they were losing a, a lot of money um, because the strike was, was really pretty effective. They decided they were just going to get non-union labor to unload the ships and to put them in warehouses. Well, you know, that was anathema to to the strikers, to, that somehow that they could get away with having any non-union person work for them. It, it would basically render the longshoremen you know, powerless. They decided, so on July 2nd, the um, ship owners started this process of unloading goods with um, non-union labor. And the, you know, the longshoremen wouldn't stand for it. And so a riot ensued in which about 50 people were injured, both police and longshoremen. But it finally settled down. And the several, and several the, were killed, right? Next day was 4th of July. And everybody spent that day kind of settling down and licking their wounds. Um, but then the, the following day on July 5th, which today is referred to as Bloody Sunday, the ship owners decided to try and start up this, this operation, which was really just moving a tiny bit of cargo, but it was very symbolic, you know, and they, they hoped it was just going to break the strike and the, and the morale of the strikers. But it did really just the opposite, because on the morning of uh, July 5th, as soon as these trucks emerged from the, the Embarcadero piers with uh, cargo um, unloaded by non-union labor, the strikers and supporters, there were over 10,000 strikers and other union supporters lined up on the Embarcadero, and they charged across the Embarcadero at the police line, and it was basically a war zone mm. for the rest of the day. There was just incredible bloody violence attacking. Police on their side had big truncheons, billy clubs, and tear gas, and the strikers on their side had collected rocks and bricks, and it was a melee that lasted for hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, California Governor Frank Merriam um, decided to uh, call in the National Guard to shut mm. the whole thing down. The next day, on July 6th, the National Guard shows up with, you know, machine guns and artillery and bayonets and sandbags, you know, they created, you know, little sh machine gun nests. I mean, it's, it's, it's you can't hardly imagine it today, you know, but it was, it was um, quite a scene and it essentially ended the maritime strike. Mm -hmm. Now on that July 5th, the last, that day of the uh, horrendous riot, two 
strikers who amazingly weren't actually rioting at the time. Um, two strikers uh, were shot by plainclothes policemen in front of the, well, you know where the Otterford building is? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Boulevard on, restaurant. Yeah. Right. Right. Boulevard restaurant. They were shot in front of that building and they were, again, they weren't actually part of the riot. They were, they were strikers. They fell and they died. Mm. And of course, this was really shocking to everybody in the city. These two men would just be shot down in cold blood. They didn't have any weapons on them. Just a, a horrific mm -hmm. uh, event. So Harry Bridges did something that was so, so smart. He decided that they were going to stage a peaceful funeral cortege up Market Street with thousands and thousands of longshoremen and other unionized occupations to take the bodies of these two fallen strikers to be buried. Mm -hmm. It was a, a remarkable. They had a band playing, you know, um, the funeral marches. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the caskets laid out on flatbed trucks. Mm. With one of them strikers was a veteran, so they had an American flag over his coffin. And it slowly, 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 and they were walked eight abreast, taking up the entire Market Street. All of these, you know, marchers walked eight abreast up Market Street from the Embarcadero. And, and then tens and maybe even hundreds of thousands of San Franciscans saw this march. And they saw that the strikers weren't violent they weren't being violent they weren't you know and and they also you know he's smart they didn't have any signs you know this was just a statement of look what's happened to us for just striking to get a, a, a fair working a, conditions a fair working conditions and fair wage and it really changed public opinion public opinion at that point there was sort of a mixed opinion obviously some people on one side some people on that but public opinion really started to shift in favor of support of the strikers at that point. Uh -huh. It was a brilliant theatrical tactic well, on the part of Bridges. Once again, Harry Bridges, as I said, was a monumental labor leader and somebody who and really earned his reputation at, at the general strike. So, Daniel, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, and we don't want to give away the uh, the ending because we want people to go out and buy your book, Frisco, but in the remaining couple of minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, what can I say? It did it really, probably the third greatest event in San Francisco history, the, you know, this strike behind the, the gold rush and the 1906 earthquake and fire. And one of the reasons why I feel that way is that I think it changed San Francisco forever. San Francisco uh, really became known as a much more compassionate, worker-friendly city. I mean, because one of the things about this event was that it happened, it got worldwide notoriety. People heard about this strike and the general strike around the world and certainly around you know, the United States. So it really sort of cemented San Francisco's reputation as a progressive place is, you know, still part of the DNA of the city today. Well, Daniel, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. And how can our listeners follow you? I have a website, daniel-bacon.com. I also have another one, barbarycoasttrail.org. So either of those places you can find me 
And um, you can contact me if you have any questions or would love to hear from anyone. Well, listeners, you heard it directly from Daniel. Uh, Daniel is a noted historian here in San Francisco. And as he as he recounts in this book, Frisco, he recounts a, a seminal moment in the history of the city, the general strike of 1934. And then, of course, he was very instrumental in setting up the Barbary Coast trail through San Francisco. So by all means, reach out to Daniel. The next time you come to San Francisco or you you want to visit the Barbary Coast Trail and walk around it, I recommend that you go to Daniel's website. Daniel, once again, what is the Barbary Coast site? It's barburycoasttrail.org. You heard that, listener. So once again, Daniel, thanks so much. And we'll look forward to having you back again when you write your next novel. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 326 for the San Francisco Experience. With listeners in 65 countries, the podcast is carried on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart, among others. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.